The saints of old have given us these gifts and they have named these days leading up. Yesterday, of course, was Monday, Thursday. Today is Good Friday. Why do they call it good? It's a horrific, barbaric murder of God. I always struggle with that as a kid. Why is this called good? Why? What's, there's not one thing good about it. Of course, we know the answer to that. We know what is happening that makes it good. There's no more incident that's more tragic, no future event that will ever match it. No military invasion, no cataclysmic act of nature. Nothing can rival what has happened on this day. Nothing. It is with itself stands alone as the greatest event in all of history. And yet it was horrific and barbaric. And so we have to think again about what had happened. And instead of reading the passage at once, I'm going to clip through it. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 27, we can go and look through a couple of key things so we don't have time to really read the whole thing. But to piece together the four Gospels and give a little background about what is happening, here we are walking through the events right after Jesus was taken from the garden. And it was, he was taken through a trial that was not good on this Good Friday. He was taken through a ridiculous act of justice. After he left that night, when he, after he left the garden, he was taken away to Anna, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And there they prepared the steps for the trial and then immediately brought him into Caiaphas area. And there in front of the chief priests and the elders, they created this kangaroo court of sorts. And in doing so, they tried to manufacture false testimonies and they couldn't collaborate the stories. Turns out all their lies weren't working. So Caiaphas and a, a move figured out a way to corner him, find a reason to take him to Pilate. He takes him to Pilate and there before Pilate, he says, this man is innocent, but hey, why don't you go to Herod? So he goes to Herod, they usher him off in chains, they beat him while he is there, and, they, and there Herod finds him innocent as well, sends him back to Pilate. And then there with Pilate, he is once again brought up against the reality, this man is innocent, but then sets in motion the decision amongst the crowd. And there the chief priests rile the crowd and get them to choose Jesus, and he is the one to be crucified. So we're going to pick up right, right here in Matthew 27, and we're going to look at uh, starting with verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. <clears throat> now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate, <clears throat> Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For they knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, he was sitting 
on the judgment seat, and his wife said to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall we do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted, let him be crucified. And I want you just to pause there, think about this for a minute. The horrible, corrupt, evil Roman leadership and the governors and those who are in the power were actually declaring him innocent. While the shepherds of Israel, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were the ones who were stirring the crowd, who were putting the false witnesses, who were, had put the evil plan in place, the irony of this. Remember on Wednesday when Ravi was preaching about the lament of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. Here once again, the bad guys were good, the good guys were bad. It was all evil in this kangaroo court of sorts. Even Pilate's wife was saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And yet, this horrific trial took place. And they chose to release the notorious criminal Barabbas over Jesus. Can you imagine the insanity, the irony of this crowd? The corruption here was so significant. The injustice. Just think about how today we look at the world and we see injustice and we stand up and we march and we, we are appalled by it. There was an event that, if you remember, uh, happened in 2016 and 2017 that really struck my wife Priscilla and I's heart. Otto Wambier was an outstanding UVA student who had a love for risky travel, and he goes to North Korea, and one night he takes a poster off the wall, a propaganda poster, on his way literally onto the airplane, leaving North Korea. He is detained and held. They don't even know what happens to him for six weeks. And then on the great surprise, on February 29th of 2016, he appears before the, this Korean court of sorts, and they find him guilty. Guilty, and they sentence him to 15 years of hard labor. Every human rights watch who were watching this called this an outlandish, outrageous act of justice, a kangaroo courts of sorts. And that's the last we saw of Otto. His parents tried for 17 months to get him released. And when they did, they were horrified by how they received him in the airplane. In a coma, a feeding tube up his nose, his head shaved, and in their words, his teeth looked like they were trying to rearrange them with pliers. And what they had done to their son was horrific. Cindy Wambier, who was his mother, said they destroyed him. And on June 19, 2017, at the age of 22, he died. It was horrible. And to add insult into injury, the North Korean officials said, we are the biggest victim of this death because we are now the result of a smear campaign. 
And you think of that one death, and we say, this is un- unthinkable, this is outrageous. And without any disrespect to the Wambier family, it is nothing compared to what happened on Good Friday. Nothing. As a parent, we know the sting of someone, don't mess with my child. And yet this was nothing compared to the horrific, epic travesty of justice that has taken place on this Good Friday. We feel the horror of it. And that is why John Piper calls this crucifixion history's most spectacular sin. This evil taking place on this Friday that we call good. Back into the crucifixion, we pick up later on in verse 27 that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus out of the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion. They stripped him. They put a robe on him. They twisted together a thorn of crowns and placed it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. They kneeled before him. They mocked him. They hailed him king of the Jews. They went out. They stripped him. And they led him out to be crucified. And when they went out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And then when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among and cast in the lots. And there they sat down, they kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This little phrase in verse 35, this one little phrase, and they crucified him. We all know what that meant. But do we? I find myself needing to refresh myself of the barbaric way of of Roman execution, of what exactly they did to him. It was around about 9 a.m. when they drove those nails into his hands and wrists, drove his nails into his feet. And just think about his body already being whipped, pummeled to death, beaten, mocked, spit upon, stripped, and then reclothed, crown of thorns on his head. He, was, he came to the crucifixion already exhausted, beaten badly, his back a bloody pulp. And there he was in Golgotha, and it says in one little phrase, and then they crucified him. As we know that crucifixion is one of the most cruelest forms of punishment, you basically die of suffocation. You spend hours, if not days sometimes, criminals, pushing against their body, against their own body's ability to breathe while their hands and their feet are ripping the nerves apart and the the tendons, the blood gushing, their back scraping up against the raw flogged of their own back against that wood. It is a horrific, brutal, unbelievable, barbaric way. It makes our executions look pretty tame in this day and time. 
There's absolutely nothing in our human comprehension that can understand the suffering and the humiliation of Christ. Later on in verse 46, we read about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This has always been, this is one of the famous last sayings of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, while he was in such horrific pain, he actually can look down and and try to take care of his mother? He actually can forgive those who are doing this to him? Unfathomable when you think about that. When we are hurt, the first thing we want to do is take care of our own selves. And he is ministering to others in the midst of horrific agony. And in doing so, one of the other one of the thieves on, the, on one of his sides is actually comes to know the Lord and will enter into paradise. He's saving people's lives even while he's dying. And so here he is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looked like maybe he was doubting. I wonder what he was wondering, is this a doubt? Could it possibly? No, absolutely not. In fact, we've already read Psalm 22, from which this exact phrase. Think about this, brothers and sisters. In the midst of such agony, he is confessing, he is exalting out, I am exhausted, I am been forsaken, but I absolutely am in control at the same time. For Psalm 22, from which he is quoting from and which we just read earlier, is exactly the playbook from which he is living out this horrific moment. He is in complete control. And why do we know that? Do you remember back in the garden, just a few hours prior, Peter, as while Jesus is being you know, apprehended, Peter pulls a sword out and he's cut off the ear of, of one of the guards. Jesus says, put your sword back. And he says these words. He goes, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But, but how then should the scripture be fulfilled? That it must be so. That it must be so. He's in complete control of this. He can, any time he can stop it. But he's pushing on in agony. And in complete agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he is drinking now deep the, the, the mockery, the sin, the pain of this all. But listen carefully again. He knows this is coming. He wrote the words. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. These are the words from which David had said in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before, now fulfilling every amazing part of this. And as we read earlier, Jesus says, I'm scorned by mankind, despised by people. All who seek me mock me. They make their mouths wag at me. They have pierced my hands and feet. It's amazing, isn't it? All prophesied, all fulfilled, all in God's perfect way. Horrific, painful, bad, but God is in control. He is in charge of this. They divide my garments among me. They cast the lots. This prophecy is being fulfilled in unbelievable ways, literally down to each action from which we are seeing here. Talk about power and love. He had all right to get off that cross, 
But before the foundations of the world, he laid down this spectacular display of love and salvation. Psalm 22 acted like his playbook from which he just lived right out in front of us. No human has ever been so unjustly treated because no human has ever been so worthy of praise. There is no greater love, no humility that could ever match this. There's no more courageous act than what is being witnessed on this Good Friday where such horrible bad things are happening. The justice was horrible. The crucifixion unthinkable. And yet, and yet, out of great love for us, he endured it. There was a first century bishop of Sardis, St. Melito, who said something really incredible. He said that what Jesus experienced on Good Friday, he was enduring every single leader and patriarch and that who the Old Testament exalted, all their pain, all their suffering. When Cain killed Abel, he was like Abel, unjustly murdered. When Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers and sent off to slavery, he experienced that. The pain of Moses, the suffering in the Passover land, the persecution of David, the dishonoring and murdering of the prophets, all of that into one moment were all the sting of that. And yet, just think about this with Joseph. We know the story of Joseph, the Joseph, the little boy with his dad gave him the coat of many colors. Not, not Joseph, Jesus' uh, father. But no, this is the Joseph who was put away, sold in slavery, put in the pit, was wrongfully accused, was placed in prison, was completely, absolutely unfairly treated, and yet he was able to say later in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then the ultimate fulfillment of that is now seen in Jesus on the cross. What all the evil that men did, many by all the good religious people, the travesty of justice, the incredible way from which he was barbarically beaten. And yet, it's all good. He was in charge of it all. He did this for us. Since God himself did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then graciously give us all things? My brothers and sisters, it's all true. These historic events are true. They are all happening so that we might be saved. Do we understand? Do we understand the full benefits of this? Are we living in, in fidelity to what the gospel is saying? Who we are in Christ because of what he did on this Good Friday. Think about one, one last point. The Heidelberg Catechism is helpful. The Catechism asks this question, what benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? The answer is this. By Christ's power, our old selves are crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of gratitude to him. Think how you will do that. How will you offer your lives to him? Is anyone here doubting that you had that relationship with Christ, please come and talk to one of us if you want to make sure, if you want to understand that you have been saved by Christ 
or that you doubting whether you are? Is there any sin that's holding you back? Is there any addiction, anything in secret that is keeping you from embracing the wonder and the glory and the love of this Savior who died for you on the cross? Confess it. Release it unto him. Cast your burdens upon him. Fall on your knees and remember the evil, the bad, the injustice that took place for him that he did for us. It is a horrible and unspeakable thing. What Satan and sinful man meant for evil, God meant for good. That is why we call this Good Friday.